All right, Eugene. All right. Hello, hello. How's it going? Um, admiring your outfit. No, I knew you were going to talk okay. about the outfit. <laughs> no. The second I saw you rock up, I was like, this is it. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. Going straight into the intro. Eugene wearing a button-up shirt, which he's taking off right now. I'm gonna have throwing, to. I'm gonna have to crumble. throw. You have to go to a dinner. It's don't nylon. Crumble. It's like it's like not a traditional fabric. It's like a performance fabric that doesn't. What? Okay. Well, I'm gonna have from? to add. I'm gonna add some 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 button-up shirt from. It's from. It's actually yeah. it fits you well. Oh, Alk Phoenix, the Japanese brand that is a ski wear brand, but it has a performance lifestyle brand. And then Sub-label. also a blazer on top of the shirt. But with shorts. But with shorts and boots. Yes. Yeah. All black. Everything's all black. <sighs> Looking you good. had to go there. Looking you good. had to go there. Yeah. You know. This is perfect for us to jump into our question of the week. Because talking about your outfits makes you mad? Yeah. So we asked on the Making Instagram whether folks have any questions for us to talk about on Making It Up. So from now on, if you guys want to give us some banter material, please DM us. And Colby asked, what are you like when you're really mad? Uh, you know, what's weird. I get a runny nose. <laughs> yeah. Like a bi- your physiological response yeah. is to get a runny nose. I get a runny nose. That is but so not, but interesting. But I'm not, it's not like I'm crying. I just get a runny nose. No, I know. But it's such an interesting yeah. like physical response yeah. to being angry. But sometimes I think I'm hyping myself up. And the byproduct of that is a runny nose. So what I mean is sometimes when I'm like talking to somebody and I feel the need to like psych myself up and then I'll just like push a button and then get mad. I get pretty intense. I've been told that when I'm really mad, I am scary. I've never seen you mad. No, I don't think you have. Not properly. I've learned, though, that really when I get really mad, you just need to give, or I just need to give myself like 15 minutes to cool off and like to not, you know, talk about it, not try to get, you know, if it's ang- being angry at someone, like not trying to start a confrontation, just like give myself 15 to 20 minutes to cool off and then it will be immediately like better. Like my reaction will be but more are reasonable. You, are you aggressive? Actually, now that I think of it in other contexts, like when I play sports and I get mad, um, uh, Generally I can speaking, like an get outburst. aggressive. I've, I would say my form of aggression is to really rip into people with you swear? words. No, I just like go for the heart. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, get them where it hurts. Um, but I would like to say that this does not happen so much. I think people think I'm more upset or angry than I actually am most of the time. 
You have like resting discontent face. Actually, yeah. Not like not like a what's the phrase? Bitch face. Resting bitch face. Is that the term? Yes, RBF. Okay. Well, you don't have that. You have like this look that makes you appear perpetually like mildly dissatisfied with everything around you. Accurate. Accurate. Thank you. Yep. How I feel about the world. Yep. It's on your face. People can tell. All right. Let's jump into it. Let's go. You first or me? You go first. Okay. Good banter today. Thanks to Colby. Okay. My subject this week is a letter published by the new editor-in-chief of Kotaku. The new editor-in-chief is Patricia Hernandez. She had previously been at Kotaku as the deputy editor and then left to go to Polygon and is now back as the new editor-in-chief. Kotaku is a video game website that is owned by Gawker Media. It is considered one of the big video game websites alongside Polygon and IGN. IGN is the only one I really know, but that one's like old, old school. People still read it, Yeah, I would say. Well, we're going to talk a bit about video game websites and writing in general. So Kotaku, just to give some context, has gone through a lot of staff changes in the last year and a half post being acquired by Gawker. Patricia doesn't really refer to this, but I think it's interesting in the landscape of things. But Kotaku has been around from 2004 and then just kind of like shifted hands and management over time. And she wrote this letter addressed to readers, and it's quite long. And parts I think are worth talking about here on MIU are specifically about video game criticism and how we discuss video games in culture. To start off with, Hernandez says, this is a quote, I want to dismantle and redefine what a video game website can be. I do not like what I see, where to even begin. And then she goes into a a list of things she doesn't like about video game website coverage, which isn't just about Kotaku, but in general, the landscape, the landscape of video game writing. And I would say actually the landscape of media. media. Okay. So a lot of these things are going to be familiar to us and also to our listeners. So she points out, you know, the day-to-day schedule relies on game releases and the news cycle determined by game publishers. Coverage of big-budget video games makes games more important when they're hyped and they're unreleased, and then also really important when they're just launched. And it seems to focus on just those moments in time. They pander to SEO, and they have to play this traffic game, very normal for media sites. The cycle is punishing for editors. Again, true across the board for media sites because they have to deal with all of the above and also play the games and still like write thoughtfully and address their audience. I know like half of that, just like the news cycle. Yeah. I think that's one of the big reasons why when we left Hypebeast was like, let's, let's create something where we don't have to be subservient to the news cycle. I know. And pub- it's publishing, different, right? Like yeah. you all, you were not in the editorial team, but you also could feel our pain. Yeah, I w- I'm lucky. I wasn't one of the editors. I mean, Arthur Bray just left, who used to be a Hypebeast editor. And I sat next to him for a long time. <laughs> I do remember that. Right, be- right beside the pillar. And it, Yeah, right beside the pillar. And it was like physical pain. Like I could see him like banging out seven 250 word articles a day, like every day. And it. All right, let's not call it banging out. Okay. Like, he rewrote a press release. All right. Don't. You're underselling. But anyway, the point is that video games, like a lot of media sites, have to deal with that. 
And then there's some things that are interesting about video games specifically. And Hernandez writes that she feels video game websites often fail their audiences. Specifically, she feels that it fails the stereotypical gamer by not actually cutting through hype and presenting an alternative look on things. And it also fails the non-stereotypical gamer, this wider audience, by pandering to the typical gamer. So she says, actually, we're not doing a good job of delivering to anyone who is coming to the site. It's like the barbell thing. It's like doing nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. for everybody. Yeah. And actually, I fall exactly into, she acknowledges that a lot of people don't even read video game websites anymore unless they're looking up how to do something. Interesting. Kind of like a guide, right? Yeah. And that's totally true for me. Like, I'm aware of Kotaku, but I've not read, like, a review on them in a very long time. And I just Google, like, video game name and then the guide for the specific part that I'm trying to identify. What I think is interesting about the audience question is that she says, oh, video game sites aren't in need of being more woke, but in need of really trying to represent the very wide audience of people who play games. I know I've said this on the podcast before, this idea that actually everyone is a gamer in the same way that all of us read, you know, and it's just a matter of like, what game is it? You know, I always say our parents like play Candy Crush or whatever popular mobile game it is. And that's a kind of gaming as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So that's, intriguing to me to see how Kotaku handles that and I would say that I'm she you know she shared this on Twitter and she was saying like oh no big deal I just want to change everything and I had thought oh maybe there's going to be a lot of backlash from the typical gamer capital G gamer saying like oh I can't believe you guys are switching to this like wider coverage for all these people who aren't like the real gamers. But then on Twitter, she got a lot, like, overwhelmingly positive response. Can Before you read that, like, for me, I fall into the casual gamer category. For me, I actually find interest in games because in many ways, they're kind of the future of entertainment. A lot of interesting intersection there. Also, I feel that ways that you can pull people in through more familiar avenues is kind of a win because... By properly generalizing something, you create a really nice funnel. And I hate to use marketing terms, but it's just a way to encapsulate and to kind of sprinkle this really interesting draw for other people, right? And that for me is like always interesting. Like I was never going to play Animal Crossing, but by virtue of it being so intersected with fashion, it was interesting to me, right? That would be an example of how I look at what the world of gaming can do for a non-gamer or a casual gamer. Yeah, totally. I mean, that is, there's a lot in this piece, but that that was one of the two points I found the most interesting was her talking about how being able to criticize and not criticize as in be critical of, but to write thoughtfully about video games as a cultural artifact speaks to life in general and is not just about like a video game experience. Exactly. As you're saying. It shouldn't happen in a bubble, but I think that now increasingly, the worlds are even further blurred than ever before. If we look back 10 years ago, I think it was like sneaker culture was sneaker culture, food was food. And now the overlap is more apparent, but also promoted. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think this is one of the things to be careful of if you are Kotaku or another video game website is you, it is in your interest to write more broadly about these intersections, about these blurring of Mm -hmm. spaces. But you also have to be sure you give people a reason why they're coming to your site specifically. And that has to still be an expertise that I think is rooted in video games versus in the fashion side of things. And I don't even know how Kotaku makes its money beyond advertisements because obviously it's free. It's mainly ads. Yeah, like it's such an easy, not easy, but it's a play where, hey, our free content changes, becomes this. The paid content becomes that. Mm. And the people that will pay for it are the diehards who would have paid for a whole swath of video game experiences. Yeah, and that's generally that how sense. it works. It's like the whale strategy, whether it's gaming, where a small percentage funds the ecosystem for everybody else, right? And it's not that different from the world of media. Well, just pick the topic, right? Yeah. Like any single topic website. So there's this paragraph that I want to read, which is on the same subject we're talking about. Hernandez writes, I mentioned these accomplishments not to prove gaming is worth taking seriously, but to take that thought one step further. If games are indeed as important as we say they are, then we should feel comfortable enough to hold them to a higher standard. If we truly respect this space, we should be able to challenge the video game industry, its products, and the communities surrounding it. If we want the world to stop treating games like mere toys, we also have to stop treating video games like a wilting flower that must be protected at all costs. And I think this is a really accurate description of people's perceptions of video games and yeah, this changing super attitude. Accurate. So video games used to, like she says, considered to be toys, like pure entertainment, relegated to like a subculture of people who play games. But the reality is that video games can be considered the same way we consider movies and music and any other type of entertainment to be a reflection of life and also like contributing to the structures of the way things are set up or like how we think about things yeah yeah totally yeah i mean it's interesting and i don't know why it popped in my head but well i guess probably because it falls in line with media but that whole thing about how if you really respect and embrace something you should allow it to be dissected and you should allow it to be critiqued which is often a topic that comes up in like authoritarian governments right like i I, sounds like a off-base thing but the reality is that people that are critiquing it are not doing it because they have necessarily a bone to pick they're doing it because they want accountability and they want the best for the general population and society yeah i mean i think i agree with your example of like thinking about it on a governmental level but it's even true as people like if i really care about eugene as a friend then i would you'll tell me my fit sucks Okay, yeah, I would tell you if it sucks. Or, you know, if I thought like this is not the way you should like conduct yourself or whatever. I'm not saying this is like a real life example, but you get the point. Yeah. Like when you really care about something, like that's when you take the time and effort to want it to be better. Mm-hmm. And people do get I don't know if people get more upset about video games and other types of entertainment, but you've definitely heard of like people getting super pissed when like a YouTuber or a blogger or whatever like shits on their favorite game. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like kind of a bad rep for I guess the video game audience. But I think Hernandez and Kotaku are not alone in an increasingly number of, you know, 
writers and streamers, et cetera, who are like, hey, we can be more thoughtful and critical about what we're saying and not just like purely like, oh, I love this. This is great. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of a different type of relationship. So, for example, the aspect of critiquing, right? It's a little bit different in the world of fashion because fashion and the access that you seek is gatekept by the brand versus with gaming. I mean, I can go out and and buy a game for like 50 bucks and play it, right? Yes, I might be late. I might not get a pre-release, but I can still go and do that. So that perhaps is why fashion is probably stuck in a different lane that I can't really get out of. Mm. Yeah, that's Because that, we've talked about that before, uh, a Eugene Rapkin piece, right? Yeah. And, and as you recall, you kind of need to keep a certain relationship with brands if you want to get invited back season after season for that access. Yeah. But then again, maybe there's something much more interesting than just, they don't want it to be like, game comes out, review it, and I'm done. Yeah. It's about the whole interconnectivity of everything. Which to that point, like, just because you don't cover that latest, I don't know, like Gucci runway show, it doesn't necessarily negate your ability to impact fashion media as a whole. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. What is interesting about video games, and I don't know if there's an exact like fashion equivalent, is that there are a lot of affordable indie games that you can play on your computer immediately for, you know, two bucks US, three bucks US. So the entry is much lower to start playing and also to start writing about games and being a part of that ecosystem in the same way as fashion like there's a lot of focus on like playstation exclusives and bethesda and these big publishers What's bethesda bethesda is the publisher that makes fallout oh okay yeah so there's a lot of focus on those big companies which i guess is like in the fashion sense like the gucci's and lv's but i feel like in the video game landscape there's still like a lot of encouragement of small like independent creators and that actually a lot of the platforms are still reliant on them continuing to make games and being creative yeah yeah it's so crazy if you think about the future of gaming it's not even just like this medium right because i think it's one thing that yes it's like the act of controlling something and having an ability to impact the outcome of something but it's also the mechanism of it right the fact that you can create so many things on your own i think creates an infinite number of possibilities which falls very much in line with i think that's just the general direction of where almost everything is going where there's a sense of like community and inclusivity but i also think of it from the aspect of sort of gamification as it pertains to just like other aspects of life, like learning, like yeah. education. I mean, there are countless examples where something started as a mechanic or technical ability in a video game and then crossed over to other parts of our lives that you might not associate with a video game. Like the most obvious one, like you said, is so many things that we do and enjoy have a gamification element. So, for example, like the Nike running app mm-hmm. or any exercise app really has a gamification yeah. component where there's like a leaderboard and you're competing with your friends or you can try to meet a daily challenge and get extra points. Like that's totally just t- taken from video games. Yeah, like video game and game in general are going to sort of cross over. Like if something's AR related is it a video game, well, it probably still 
will embrace some of the same mechanics. Yeah, I mean, we saw that after Pokemon Go, like, took the world by storm. I think every client and brand asked, okay, how can we do AR? Yeah. What's, what's the application for us? Yeah. So actually, what's interesting, I had referred to the fact that Hernandez had shared this on Twitter and so many people were supportive, but a lot of people said, I don't read Kotaku or I stopped reading Kotaku and now I'm going to come back and try it again. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting to me from a media perspective that this one hire of a new editor in chief could be influential enough to get people to like reconsider a platform. And also, I think about that relationship like, for example, if someone subscribes to the Make and Briefing and then unsubscribes, I generally don't expect to ever connect with them ever again. Yeah. Like, it's just the reality of it, right? Like, what we do is probably not interesting. And, like, they'll never also find out if something changes. Unless, for example, on an off chance, somebody tweets something and, like, oh, that's interesting to me now. But or, let's say, like, we tweeted, actually, Bezod is going to take over the Make and Briefing. Bezod's a friend of ours. Mm. And then maybe that would have the same effect where it was like, oh, like I unsubscribed, but yeah. now I'm interested again. Yeah, I Just don't know. Just an ex ex possible example. Yeah. Yeah, of that editorial influence, yep. call it. I mean, there's no promise yet. I guess the promise is Hernandez's past tracker, track record, but we'll see what happens. So I just want to end with her last paragraph. She says, well, this is her second last, sorry. I just want to wrap up with one of her closing paragraphs where she writes, The future of Kotaku to me spans beyond video games. Games will always be the driving force, but I'd like to think that what unites us isn't our willingness to hold a controller. Nerds are defined by fandom and an insatiable curiosity for how things work. Sometimes that drive and obsession unfolds in video games, but not always. To properly showcase video game culture, it's necessary to talk about our digital lives more broadly. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Games provide a crucial framework for parsing modern life, and Kotaku will now be an attempt to capture that. I believe a different type of video game site is possible. I hope you want to believe in that too. I just came across this randomly, honestly. Like, it was shared by a couple of people I follow, so it wasn't from a newsletter or anything. But I'm really glad I did, because I think on a personal tip, like, I've been playing more games and a greater variety of games over the last maybe three years and I genuinely do not think about them the way I think about like movies or books or tv shows yeah but I think I should like that's kind of what this made me think was yeah. that like oh how come I don't apply that same evaluation of the game that I do when I finish a book or watch a movie I think I'm probably stuck in a particular genre for the foreseeable future, which kind of sucks. Like, I have no interest in really playing like RPGs, which I think you or Nate enjoy playing more. Uh, I don't have the patience for it. I also don't have that bandwidth or a partner that will let me do that. Like, I think there's, I think it's, it's hardly permissible for me to play Fortnite with the boys, let alone play by myself mm. on an RPG. But I mean, you still think a lot about the way video games interact with other things in life totally. and i think that's what your interest continues to be in yeah like i grew up playing video games like my brother and i like nate would play sega genesis or whatnot like growing up and those were still like really fond memories and i i think we're at a point now where obviously the lifeline of gaming is not restricted to your youth like it doesn't stop at you know after university for example yeah and its cultural impact is so much more than 
entertainment or nostalgia. Yeah, it's only going to get bigger. You want to move on? Yeah, let's move on. My topic this week is How Fashion's Erratic Sizing is Fueling a Clothing Waste Crisis by Days Digital's Sophie Benson. So this piece that appeared in Days Digital highlights the huge and to a degree unseen challenges that comes both at the cost for the consumer and the cost to the environment when it comes to, I wouldn't say missized clothing, but just like this whole issue around sizing in general. I don't so know what to call it. It's, it's very hard. Yeah, It's just... Sizing inconsistency is probably the, the best way. Mm. So in short, they start the story by sharing a tweet by freelance football producer Becky Taylor Gill, who laments over two pairs of size 42 jeans that fit drastically different, but are from the same brand. So the photo, obviously this is a podcast, you can't see it. It's a photo of her with one pair of jeans on the ground, and then a photo of her trying to put on another pair in a dressing room, and it's kind of a mirror selfie. And she can't get the pants over a certain, I think it's over her knees. Right. So she's like obviously baffled. Like she's like, these are the same pair of pants. Yeah. They're tagged the same. So why don't they fit? It's so ludicrous as to be funny. While this is actually less of an issue because she's trying them on in store, there is a greater and massive environmental issue because if you are ordering clothing online, there's a good chance that if you return that clothing and it's low price, they might just cut their losses as a brand and just toss it and throw it in the into a landfill. To look at the numbers, in the US, there's about 5 billion pounds of clothing that end up in a landfill that are re- due to returns. And as a re- and as a result of that, there's up to 15 million tons of carbon emissions that are emitted because of that. So obviously, it's kind of hard to calculate because it's already been produced, but that is the impact of 5 billion pounds of wasted clothing, and that's in the US alone. For some plus-size consumers, they may feel negatively about themselves. Uh, they, Days Digital interviewed fashion psychologist Dion Terralong, who says, if we have a script that says I am a size 12, for instance, that is a marker of our typical self. Then if a garment doesn't fit, we might be less likely to buy a size up because doing so will misaligns with the script that we have of ourselves. So in short, if the perception and the reality don't mix, it might create, I guess, a fracture in your, in your identity. I mean, I can speak to this. I'm not plus size. And I have dealt with this where I've thought I'm a medium or a size eight and it doesn't fit. And I don't like the idea of having to buy a large or a 10 or a 12. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's not totally rational. Okay. Like I know in my mind. It's not really your fault. Yeah. Because I know in my mind, like, oh, maybe the brand's sizing is different. Exactly like what this article is saying. Yeah. And so like one brand's eight is another brand's six or 10 or whatever. But it does do something to you. Yeah, like on. Head. I mean, it's it's interesting because I think on the on the male side you have less of that. I'm sure there's a subset that's like I'm for sure an extra large. I mean, it is what it is in in the sense that like, what's I mean, this is the the part that maybe you can speak to, but no one really looks at someone, sizes them up, and be like, hey, can't believe they're wearing like a size whatever. It's actually all internalized. It's totally. an internal conflict. It is an internal conflict. I would say that, but I think it's. It makes a lot of sense why people have an internal conflict because you buy clothes regularly. So it just doesn't make sense to you why you would be a different size than what you thought you were. Mm-hmm. And then you question like, oh, have I gained weight? And I didn't know it. Because I guess part of the problem is just like it's not obvious what changed. Like it's not obvious. Oh, did the brand 
change how they size things? Mm-hmm. You know, did some, I don't know, does this like material strength? Like there's no way to pin down the reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty complex too, right? Like material based on sourcing, like it might be the same pair of white denim jeans, right? But the reality is that maybe on one sourcing uh, season, it's different from the next one. And it might have been washed differently, et cetera, et cetera. But it, I mean, amidst all of this, I think this is like one section of it that is probably a little bit more clear in terms of objectively how to tackle it because it's like fit, right? It's more about like understanding if I'm going to buy something that fits. Mm. I mean, the environmental part, I don't know if you want to talk about that more, but that's really concerning. Yeah. Like, I mean, this this piece didn't really talk that much about it, but I think what you're trying to do is find ways to minimize the waste around it, which I think is difficult because of some of the things I want to touch upon Mm. in this article. But there are some brands out there, such as Kai Collective, who take a very lo-fi approach. It's like, I have a pair of pants or I have a jacket. I'm going to have people of different body sizes try it on. And you kind of see that to an extent. Like, if I'm going to buy something off a website, uh, like menswear, they'll usually give the dimensions of, the garment plus they'll have the model's height and weight although it's not perfect it is uh one way of looking at it uh and then also there's people that have gone the more sort of high-tech route such as asos who had this see my fit ar tool which simulates how certain dresses would fit but i think you know one thing that's also interesting is that fit as we know falls within this unobjective way of sizing right like small medium large extra large I always thought it was interesting when I would go to Uniqlo and see sizing based around an objective centimeters measure. So it's kind of like jeans, right? But yeah, even jeans are not that. Yeah. I thought it was interesting is, uh, and what I thought was interesting is that does that perhaps become a method of, yes, creating a bit more legwork for the consumer to know what's their centimeter or inches size, but it creates a more objective way of how to shop. Yeah, I agree. But it does, like you said, it requires a bit of education on how to measure your shoulders and your waist and your inseam to match that up. But it would most likely lead to better results. But beyond that, I think what's also interesting is that regardless, like some people that have been buying a brand for a long time might realize the brand size they're buying no longer is applicable. So that even if you had the centimeter, I think that, well, it just makes the name of the size irrelevant. Yeah. So you don't pay attention anymore to, is this an XSSML? You just look at the centimeters. Yeah, the range in which yeah. this should fit you. But yeah, I think that this to me is actually an extremely challenging thing to tackle because you have the objective side of just sizing in general. Like, I think that it's quite easy. It's like, hey, Lululemon's medium will always be obviously i don't know the equivalent but it's like 31 inches to 35 inches like it's just very clear right they define it as such that to me is like a way of looking at it but then i think also bringing in brand and how a brand wants to be perceived also adds another layer of complexity so if a brand wants them to be seen a certain way they want people of a certain type of body to also wear their clothing that just adds in another layer of complexity. I was also going to say there is the addition of how a brand wants their clothes to fit. Exactly. Yeah. And then they have to or choose not to explain why the fit is this way. Like a regular consumer might buy something and think, oh, this does not 
look good or this is not flattering, but that could actually be the intention of yeah. the garment. Yeah. I, I was looking for this article before, but I just recall that they were talking about how fast fashion, the way that they fit things out and like the, the patterns just don't really look good, period. And it might be because they just need to create a general one size fits all type approach. So like you're adding in the fact that something may fit, but it just doesn't look good because from a fast fashion standpoint, it was never meant to fit just a very specific demographic. Yeah, I totally get that because they've made the fit to be like an as average, generic, as generic so as you possible. So you can scale it up and down really easily yeah. rather than having to make modifications for yes. every size. I was looking for the article, but I couldn't find it. I remember oh, reading about totally that see that being yeah. true because that's kind of the case when anything hits the mainstream you cannot speak to a few people you have to speak to everybody mm. yeah you know what has worked for me in the past is comparing my existing clothing that i like to new clothing that i want to buy mm -hmm. it's not a perfect you know it doesn't always work but if you have a wardrobe of pieces that you're really happy with then you can sometimes acquire something new by comparing it to what you have. Yeah. That's like, I guess, my life hack tip. Yeah, like I've done that before. There's a jacket I really liked, so I measured it. And anytime I went to buy a jacket, same thing with a shirt, actually. The shirt that you remarked when I, that I wore when I came in, like that's a shirt that I've referenced and measured because it fits me in a way that I really like. And I have a kind of like a weird body because I have really wide shoulders. So finding off-the-rack stuff that fits me is like pretty rare. I mean, we didn't even talk about the weird bodies part, right? I mean, you say you have a weird body. Actually, you could say that we all have somewhat weird bodies. Yeah, no one fits like the the sample model body yeah. per se. Everyone is going to be like, oh, my shoulders are wider or my hips are narrower. There's always going to be something yeah, that you or, have to figure out for yourself. Yeah, like one that's really big for men is I have an athletic body, which means like I might have big legs or something. Um, so I think that all factors in. But I'm just wondering, is there a way for brands to be forced to be a bit more responsible in the way they keep consistency right i mean obviously there's only one real way of doing it i mean there's two ways i think there's a there's an opportunity for brands that really double down on the fact their fit is consistent and transparent and the other side is how do you punish brands that don't subscribe to some sort of consistent sizing. Because in some ways it just I mean, ends up being like one thing is dumping. I was just going to say yeah. one thing that's unfortunate is that a lot of the fast fashion brands offer free returns, which encourages consumers to just order things in multiple sizes because they're not sure. And then the brand, there's not sufficient penalty to the brand where they have to be responsible for those returns. Yeah. Like they would rather make things that are like ambiguous sizing have the consumer try them, send back what doesn't work, and then they just dump the returns. Yeah. There, there needs to be a penalty for that. Yeah, that's right? what I'm saying. Like A penalty, I think, would go a long ways. Because we're also at the point now where it has to be a little bit more serious because even the donation route isn't really making a difference. There's already so much stuff floating around out there that even if you were to donate and feel like I'm making a difference, like no one needs your donations. For fast fashion right now there's like heaps upon heaps of clothing that exist out there yeah i do think about how do you make the brands more responsible because when i did do more online shopping i feel like i do less now i would read a lot of reviews about fit 
because customers like take it on themselves to be very generous with their time mm -hmm. to say like, oh, this garment is, you know, tight or loose or whatever. And that is so much more helpful. Yeah. And I guess to make brands responsible would to say, okay, you need to provide that information on different body types. Yeah. I have seen brands that offer one time. I mean, I'm, I say it like it's revelational. It's not, it, but it's like really about brands that offer staple garments and it's easier for staples, right? Where it's like, oh, this is slim. This is regular. This is oversized or whatever. Like that's one way of looking at it. But then I mean, on top of that, it's like there's, Fit is so subjective too. Like people buy things to look a certain way. Let's say someone buys an oversized like NBA jersey because they want it to be longer. Like the whole tall tees era was like a thing for a reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I honestly am not very confident this will be solved unless someone can go in and honestly, like maybe that's it. It's like you are the new sort of American apparel Uniqlo that challenges the system but then ultimately you're now creating another brand the short-term you know I mean? solution which we basically already talked about is for brands to offer more specific centimeter measurements of garments and to also provide details like we said about what does this look like on different genuinely different body types so mm. that people can see that and then i wonder almost if the onus on us as consumers is to be more intentionally thinking about the size and shape of our bodies. I don't know. That sounds like really touchy feely, but like I can only speak as my personal experience. I don't often want to think too much about like whether I have changed in weight or mm. size, but that results in more waste. Yeah. In terms of what I'm purchasing or like I purchase something that I think is going to work and then I hold on to it because. I'm hoping to like fit into it better. And it's hard to confront those things about yourself, or at least it's not for everyone. Yeah. But I feel like on that ecological, on the environmental side, like you have to. Like I think the solution that will probably land somewhere in the middle is as technology on our phones gets better, you'll probably have the ability to just scan your body. Like imagine you s set your phone up and then you just like rotate around it. And then that in itself should create a relatively decent profile. That I like could that. That's probably the extent of it. I mean, what iPhone are we on now? 13? 12? 12 going on 13? 12, right? But going on 13. Sure. Yeah. Like okay. I think the next one is supposed to have improved LiDAR technology. So I think that's another way of, of looking at it. Connecting my topic to your topic, wouldn't it be cool if we could all have an app on our phone that you scan on a semi-regular basis and has that body scan and then you have an avatar and then you can like punch in brands like coordinates so they don't i don't have to like get like an nft or whatever from the brand but if i can just say like punch in the coordinates of this dress it'll like generate some kind of i don't know like a default looking yeah according to those coordinates yeah and then fit my you know model body in the what do you mean coordinates you mean measurements measurements measurements, measurements. Yeah, yeah. so like it's not going to have like the pattern or whatever but you could just type in like oh shoulders yeah 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 waist hip etc and it could just generate like a black version yeah that'd be interesting that would be pretty cool someone make that free ideas just giving out free ideas stolen that one already <laughs> cool i think that is a good place to wrap things up for the day 
If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>